Yesterday, I was in New York. I preached uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday evenings. And then yesterday morning early, I traveled to Oklahoma City where we celebrated my dad's 93rd birthday. <laughs> this morning, I got up real early, flew into LAX, and uh, rented a car and drove here. And then tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to be driving home, Lord willing. So um, I don't know what time zone I'm in. <laughs> I believe that this is uh, the Pacific time zone, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but we'll see how it goes. I'm going to shuffle the title just a little bit, uh, because tomorrow I'm going to present a two-part series. The first is titled, Michael Shall Stand Up, what uh, was really scheduled for tonight. And uh, then the second presentation, I think it's four in the afternoon, uh, will be the second part of that, and the title is Fire, Lions, and Deliverance. And this evening, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the global events that are taking place and uh, what we can expect in the future. Uh, before we do begin, though, I would like to have a word of prayer. And so I invite you to bow your heads as we ask for the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, we thank you for... Uh, the wonderful hours of the Sabbath that are just beginning. We thank you that we can just take a 24-hour break from all of our own endeavors, our work and our secular activities, and just dedicate 24 whole hours to our fellowship with you. We ask that as we open your word this evening that your Holy Spirit will be with us to guide our minds and open our hearts. We realize that we're living in trying times, the final movements are certainly rapid ones. And we want to be ready for the close of probation and the coming of Jesus. So we ask, Lord, that you will be with us in our study, and we thank you for hearing our prayer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I must say that some of the things that I'm going to say tonight will not be new. They will be review of things that you've heard before. But I've put everything together in what I consider to be perhaps a unique way, even though much of the information you've heard, the way that it's organized is perhaps a little different than what uh, you've heard before. I'd like to begin by mentioning that the end time crisis is going to involve two objects of worship and their respective signs. So basically, the end time crisis has to do with two objects of worship and their respective signs. And I'd like to begin, I hope you brought your Bibles because um, we're going to use the Bible profusely uh, this evening. We're going to begin by reading Psalm 95 and verses 1 through 6. Psalm 95 verses 1 through 6. And there are two points that I want to emphasize in this passage. It's beautiful to hear the pages of the Bible turning. I know that some of you don't have pages, you have electronic pages, and that's okay, that's fine. It says there in verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. And then we have the reason why we're supposed to praise the Lord in this manner. It says in verse 3, for, that means because, for 
the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. So we are supposed to praise the Lord and give him thanksgiving because he is the great God above all gods. Now the question is, what makes him the great God above all gods? Well, we have to continue reading uh, at verse 4. He continues saying, In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. What makes God the great God above all gods? The fact that he is the creator. And you notice here that because he is the creator, we must worship, bow down, and kneel before the Lord our maker. In other words, those are three synonymous expressions. They mean basically the same thing. Worship, bow down, and kneel to the Lord our maker. So the two points that I want us to notice as we begin our study is that we worship God, we bow down to him, we kneel before him because he is the creator. God as the creator is the reason for our worship. Now let's notice another verse in the Old Testament that expresses the same thought. Only in this verse, we're going to find that heaven also worships for the same reason, because heaven is filled with creatures as well. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Here, God is being extolled once again because he is the creator. And uh, that's not an easy book to find, Nehemiah. <laughs> that's one of those difficult books to find. But uh, if you found it, this is how it reads. You alone are the Lord. Now comes the reason. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and everything in it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve them all. And then notice the last part of the verse says, the host of heaven, what? Worships you. Once again, it speaks here about God being the creator. He made heaven, the heaven of the heavens. He made the earth, everything in the earth. And then it says that the host of heaven worships you. Once again, the emphasis is that we worship God because God is the creator. Now the next point that I want us to notice is that God established at the very beginning a reminder that he is the creator. And we all know what it is. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1 verses 31 through chapter 2 and verse 1. Chapter 2 and verse 1 actually belongs to chapter 1, even though in our Bibles it's in chapter 2. It's really the conclusion to the creation story. It says there in Genesis 1 verse 31, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were 
finished. So God finished his work of creation in six days, according to this. And then I want you to notice, and uh, we already know this, that the week was not complete because something still needed to be established during creation week. And that's where we read Genesis chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3. This is the climax of creation week. It says, and I'm going to emphasize certain expressions, and on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. And he, number one, rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day. I believe that God wants us to know it's the seventh day. Right? Three times. It says he rested on the seventh day. He blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. And now notice why God blessed and sanctified the seventh day. Because in it, he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So what this is telling us is that God blessed the seventh day, God sanctified the seventh day or made it holy and rested on the seventh day because it was a memorial of his work of creation. It was his signature on the work of creation. You know, it's like, a, like an artist who paints a work of art. You know, they finish the, the picture but what is lacking? What is lacking is the signature of the artist identifying who made the picture. And so the Sabbath is God's signature on the work of creation. And the Bible tells us three things. Remember these three things. We're going to come back to them in a few moments. He rested. He sanctified or made holy. And he blessed the seventh day Sabbath. And three times we are told that the Sabbath is the seventh day. Now, as Adventists, we believe that the days were literal 24-hour days, just like the days that we know today. And there are clear evidences in the creation story that this is the case, and in other parts of Scripture. First of all, each day had an evening and morning. It would be kind of ridiculous to say it was the evening and the morning of, the, of uh, 100 million years. You know, evening and morning indicates that it's a, it's a literal day. In scripture, when that expression is used, it means a literal 24-hour day. We're also told in the Psalms that God spoke and it was done. And in the creation story, we find the expression, and it was so, which indicates that God spoke and it happened. It didn't take millions of years to happen. Another important detail, and you know, we, we've studied these things before, is that there was no Jew at creation. So the Sabbath was made for humanity, because all humanity comes from Adam and Eve. Furthermore, in its original function, the Sabbath has nothing to do with being a shadow of the rest that Christ would give us in redemption. Because when the Sabbath was created, there was no need for redemption. In other words, the Sabbath after sin takes on a secondary meaning, which is that Jesus is going to come to give us his rest. But in its primary function, the Sabbath is a sign of creation. And if sin had not come in, the Sabbath would have been simply a sign that God is the creator, the remembrance that God is the creator.
Now, some people ask, they say, well, how do you know that the Sabbath today is the same Sabbath that existed at creation? In fact, one individual once said to me, you know, um, how do you know that the Sabbath today, the seventh day today, is the same seventh day that existed in the days of Christ? So I looked at him and I said, um, he was not an Adventist, I said, uh, what day do you go to church? He said, well, I go to church on Sunday. I said, okay. And uh, why do you go to church on Sunday? He said, well, because that's the day that Jesus resurrected. I said, oh, so the Sunday you keep today is the Sunday of the resurrection, right? He says, yeah. I said, well, if the Sunday today is the same Sunday of the resurrection, the Sabbath is the same Sabbath. <laughs> you know, you can't say that Sunday today is the same Sunday and, and Sabbath is, is a different day. But then he had an answer. He said, how do you know that the Sabbath that existed in the days of Christ was the Sabbath of creation? And I said, the answer is very simple. Because the Jesus that kept the Sabbath 2,000 years ago was the one who created the Sabbath and who he was not going to keep the wrong day. Amen. So the Sabbath today is the same Sabbath of creation. Ellen White tells us that God preserved the week and it's come down to us today without any interruption, without any break. In fact, Henry Morris renowned creationist in his book, Biblical Creationism, page 62, he's not an Adventist, uh, wrote this. The Lord himself had worked six days, then rested on the seventh, setting thereby a permanent pattern for the benefit of mankind. But then you know what he says? He says, well, there's no way to know that the Sabbath today is the same Sabbath of creation. So it's okay to keep one day in seven. But at least he agrees that the Sabbath, uh, that the week was established at creation as a pattern for all other weeks uh, in history. Now, when you examine the creation story, people say, well, you know, it doesn't say there that God told Adam and Eve to rest. It says that God rested and he blessed the day and he sanctified the day. So they say the Sabbath was not a creation institution because God did not command Adam and Eve to keep the Sabbath. Well, that's where we come to our next passage, which you are so well acquainted with, you probably can repeat it from memory, and that is the fourth commandment of God's law. Let's go to Exodus chapter 20 and verses 8 through 11. Exodus 20 verses 8 through 11. And you're going to see all kinds of links to the creation story here, to what we read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. It says there, remember. What does remember mean? Well, it must mean that the Sabbath existed before, right? You can't remember something that didn't exist before. We have, for example, the Oklahoma City Memorial. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's a really an, an interesting memorial, you know, where, where that building was bombed by Timothy McVeigh. Uh, you know, rem, what, what does that remember? It remembers something that happened in the past. So the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days, notice this, you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Why is the Sabbath the Sabbath of the Lord? Because God 
originally established it's by his rest. It's his before it's ours. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. He continues saying, in it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. And now comes the reason. For, that means because. So God is saying, work six and rest the seventh. Because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And now listen carefully. And he rested, which day? Did we find that in Genesis? Yeah, he rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed. Is that in Genesis? The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and what? Hallowed it. Is this the same Sabbath of creation? Of course it is. Remember sends us back there. First of all, it starts out by saying remember. So it sends us back to creation. And then it says, work six and rest the seventh, because God worked six and rested the seventh. Now, wouldn't it be kind of ridiculous to think that the days of creation were millions of years, and God telling us, you know, work six days and rest the seventh in commemoration of my work for millions of years and my rest for a million years. This is another evidence that the Sabbath and the first six days are literal days. Because God says, as I work six and rest of the seventh, you work six and rest the seventh. There's a parallel there, in other words. So this is the same Sabbath of creation. And God here is saying that he established it for human beings to what? For human beings to keep, to follow the example of God. Now you say, well, why didn't God command Adam and Eve to keep the Sabbath? Uh, at the very beginning. You know, it would have been nice, some people say, if God had placed in the book of Genesis and God told Adam and Eve to keep the Sabbath. Well, that would have resolved the issue once for all because it would have been clearly a creation institution. But what people argue is that Adam and Eve were not told to keep the Sabbath and therefore the Sabbath is not a creation institution. I remember the first time that I came to Advent Hope, uh, I presented a, a sermon on the Sabbath in Genesis. And I explained the reason why God did not command Adam and Eve to keep that first Sabbath. Because the Bible says that that first Sabbath, God was the one who rested. Because God had been the one who had worked. You see, man is not commanded to keep the Sabbath until the second week because the first week is God's week, the second week is man's week. Are you following me or not? In other words, God works six, he rests the seventh, and then he says to Adam and Eve, now you saw how I did it, didn't you? Now you're going to start tomorrow, with the perspective of the first Sabbath, tomorrow you're going to start working six, and next Sabbath you're going to rest to see how I rest. You're going to rest just like I rested. So, so God creates the week, he works six, rests the seventh, and then he gives the week to man and he says, you work six and you rest the seventh. And by the way, it's very interesting, the Sabbath was not made holy until it ended. So God could not have told Adam and Eve to keep the Sabbath as the Sabbath began because it wasn't holy yet. You say, is that true that the Sabbath wasn't holy until it ended? 
That's exactly what the fourth commandment says. Notice once again. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Rest of the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. When did the Lord bless the Sabbath and hallow it? After he rested. You see, it's God's rest that makes the Sabbath holy. And his rest becomes an example for our rest. So is the Sabbath a creation institution? Did God create it for human beings to keep? The fourth commandment says yes. So I want you to notice then that we worship God because God is what? The creator. And the sign of remembrance of creation is the Sabbath. Now let's read a text that puts all three of the ideas together. Isaiah 66, 22 and 23. Isaiah 66 and verses 22 and 23. The three ideas that we worship because God is the creator and the sign of the creator is the Sabbath. And of course we've read this, these texts many, many times. It says, for as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord. So do you have creation there? God's going to make a new heavens and a new earth, right? So shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, some people get all hung up with the new moon thing. Um, really, new moon means month, because the new moon marks the beginning of the month. Uh, that's why in Spanish it says de mes en mes, from month to month, in all of the versions that I, versions that I know of. And so it says, and by the way, we're going to go from month to month because there's a, a tree that produces its fruit every month. According to Revelation 22, verse 2, the tree of life. So it says, And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one, what? Sabbath to another. So what is it that is going to commemorate the creation of the new heavens and the new earth? The Sabbath. Is it going to be a continuous keeping of the Sabbath? It says from one Sabbath to another. All flesh shall come to what? Here's the third idea. Shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Is the Sabbath a sign of worship? Because God is the creator. Yes. Clearly, Isaiah 66 tells us that. Now, let's go to another point. Go with me to Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. You've all heard that people say that the Sabbath is Jewish, right? Sabbath was given for the Jews. Okay, now let's, let's examine that. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Now here comes the reason. Why is God the owner of the earth and everything that's in the earth? That's what it means, it, all its fullness, means everything that's in it. Why? Here comes the reason. For, that means because he has what? founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. That's because God is the what? The creator, of course. Now, to whom does the light belong? God created the light the first day, right? To whom does the light belong? To God. To whom does the firmament belong? 
even the firmament in Los Angeles. <laughs> Although it doesn't look like it, but people respect that it belongs to the Lord. To whom does vegetation belong? To whom do the sun, moon, and stars belong? To whom do the fish belong? To whom do the birds belong? To whom do all the animals belong? To whom do man and woman belong? To whom does the Sabbath belong? To the Jews. Who made the Sabbath? God. So if God made the Sabbath, whose is it? His. Because you can't say that everything he made the first six days is his, whereas the seventh day is of the Jews. The Jews would have had to have made it in order for it to be the Sabbath of the Jews. Now the Bible tells us that the Sabbath is a sign between him and his people. Let's read Exodus 31, 16 and 17. Exodus 31, 16 and 17. Most of this is review. But I'm, I'm, I'm coming to a point that uh, you'll see in a few moments. Exodus 31, 16 and 17. It says there, Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. Let's stop there for a moment. Who's commanded to keep the Sabbath? The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath. And people say, see, the Sabbath was given for Israel. Because it says, therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. Now, let me ask you, to whom did God give the Ten Commandments? Well, he gave, he gave the tablets to Moses, but he spoke the Ten Commandments to whom? To the Jews. Right? Did God speak the Ten Commandments to the Jews? Did Moses give the two tablets of stone to the Jews? So the Ten Commandments are for the Jews. The commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, that's for the Jews. The commandment, don't make an image and don't bow before it, that's for the Jews. The commandment to uh, not disrespect God's name is for the Jews. The commandment, honor your father and your mother is just for the Jews. Thou shalt not kill is just for the Jews. Thou shalt not commit adultery is for the Jews. Thou shalt not steal is for the Jews. Thou shalt not bear false witness is for the Jews. Thou shalt not covet is for the Jews. You say, no, no. But the Sabbath is for the Jews. <laughs> All of the Ten Commandments were given to the Jews. Because they were God's people at that time. But nowhere does it say that they were exclusively for the Jews. See, that's the way people read it. They say, because God says he gave it to the children of Israel. Of course he's going to say the children of Israel. He's not going to say to the people of Loma Linda. Those were not his people back at that time. If he was speaking today, he would say, it's a perpetual sign between me and the Loma Lindaites. Are you with me? Notice Ezekiel. Well, let's finish reading verse 17. Notice what it says about the Sabbath. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. And now comes the reason. See, the reason goes far beyond literal Israel. It goes back to creation again. 
So it predates Israel, the reason for keeping the Sabbath. And the fourth commandment, of course, applies to everyone. It says, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For, that means because, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. What is the rationale for Israel keeping the Sabbath? That God is what? The creator. Does that take us back to Genesis chapter 2? It most certainly does. Notice also Ezekiel 20, verses 12 and 20. Ezekiel 20, verses 12 and 20. Once again, it speaks of the Sabbath as a sign between God and his people. Ezekiel 20 and verse 12, and then we'll go to verse 20. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a what? A sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And then verse 20 says, hallow my Sabbaths, that means keep them, keep them holy, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. The Sabbath is a sign that who is our God? That the Creator is our God. It's a sign between the Creator and His creatures. So as long as God is cre cre a Creator, and as long as we are creatures, the Sabbath is what? The sign between God and His people. Now let's go to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14 contains the three angels' messages. It's the last message of God to the world. How do we know that the three, that the three angels' message is the last message of God to the world? Because immediately after the third message, Jesus is seen sitting on a cloud. He has a sickle in his hand and he's coming to harvest the earth. So we know that they come immediately before the second coming. Because immediately after the third message, Jesus is coming to the earth with a sickle to harvest the earth. That's his coming. Now notice what the first angel's message has to say. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell unto the earth and to all of the Jews. Yeah, them too. To whom does the first angel's message go? To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Is this a universal message for people from all ethnic groups, all nationalities? Yes. yes. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And then what do we find? And what? Worship him who, why do we worship him? Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So the first angel's message calls us to worship the creator. And what is the sign of the creator? The Sabbath. Incidentally, did you notice that you have a very strong paraphrase here of the fourth commandment and the Genesis story? Very strong paraphrase. You can't separate the Sabbath from this. Now, does God have a mark that identifies his people at the end of time? Let's go to Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. Revelation 7, 1 to 3. We've noticed that we worship God because God is the creator. 
And the sign of God as the creator, the memorial of God as the creator is the Sabbath. Now let's notice that God's people at the end will have a mark. It says in Revelation 7, 1 to 3, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having what? The seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have what? Sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So does God have a seal? Incidentally, if you read Romans 4.11, it uses seal and sign interchangeably. Circumcision was a seal or a sign, the Apostle Paul says. So seal and sign are interchangeable. So what is the seal or sign that indicates the relationship between God and his people? We've already noticed that it's what? The Sabbath. Now let's transition to the third angel's message. And before we do, I want to mention several things, several functions of God. Who is the representative of Christ on earth? The Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. correct. I'll give you the references. John chapter 14 through 16. Jesus repeatedly says that when he leaves, he's gonna send the Holy Spirit as his representative to take his place. That's John chapter 14, 15, and 16, all three chapters. Who is the only person that we can call Father? It doesn't mean we can't call our physical Father, Father. It's talking about spiritual Father. Matthew 23, verse 9, Jesus says, Don't call any man your Father, for there's only one who is your Father, and that's God in heaven. To whom only can we bow? To God. You remember when um, Cornelius came to Peter's house? And Cornelius knelt before him? And Peter, who supposedly was the first pope, <laughs> said to Cornelius, kiss my toe. <laughs> That's not exactly what he said. What did he say? Get up from there. Don't bow to me. I'm a man, just like you are. Who is the only one who can forgive sins? By the way, that reference on Cornelius is Acts 10, 25 and 26. Only God can forgive sins, Mark 2, verse 7. Who is the only one who is infallible? God, James 1, 17 says that there's no shadow of turning in him. Hebrews 13, 8 says he's the same yesterday, today and forever. God says, I am the Lord, I change not. So the Lord is the only one who is infallible. Who is the only one who has a right to set up kings and depose kings? God. Daniel 2.21 says God. Who is the only one who has the right to judge while no one can judge him? God. John 5.22 and 27. So which day did God establish as a sign between him and his people? The Sabbath. Now you say, why are you mentioning all of these things? Let's go to the third angel's message. It says, 
Remember this, the third angel's message is the contrast to the first. First message says, worship the creator. The third message says, don't worship the beast. So the first angel's message is the do. The third angel's message is the don't. Now notice what it says. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone what? Worships. Uh, let me ask you, if the beast demands worship, must he claim to be God? Did you catch that point? If the beast claims the right to be worshipped, he must claim to be God. So it says, then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, so the beast would take the place of whom? Of God. And his image, and receives his what? Oh, the beast also has a mark. And receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And now you have the same repetition of what we found at the beginning. And they have no rest, day or night, who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives what? The mark of his name. So the third angel's message tells us not to worship the beast who claims to occupy God's place on earth and has a sign of his authority, which is the mark of the beast. And we notice that it's a matter of life and death. Because if you worship the beast and receive his mark, you're going to be lost. You know, this is strong language. It says here that the wrath of God will fall upon those who, re, who worship the beast and his image and receive his mark. And it describes it in vivid terms. You know, these days it's very common to say, you know, God is love. And we kind of shuffle all of, the war all of the divine strong warnings under the rug. We don't like to talk about, the, about Ananias and Sapphira. We don't like to deal with Uzzah. We don't like to deal with, with Achan or with Nadab and Abihu. Because we say, you know, that, that kind of gives us the idea that God isn't love. But God's warnings are loving warnings. Why does God give such a strong warning? Don't worship the beast or his image. Don't receive the mark. Because if you do, you're going to drink the wine of my wrath and be tormented with fire and brimstone. Why would God give such a strong warning? It's God that's giving the warning because he doesn't want you to worship the beast or his image or receive the mark. Would you prefer to God, for God to be nice and not tell you anything about it? And you end up worshiping the beast and his image and receiving the mark? How important is it to identify who the beast is? If you don't know who the beast is, you're going to end up worshiping him. And if you don't know what the mark is, you're going to end up receiving the mark. So God says, you better know who the beast is and you better know what the mark is. So the question is, who is the beast and what is his mark? The beast is the same thing as the little horn. Now, for, some, for most of you, this will be reviewed. Prophecy has a chain with links, interconnecting links. 
If you look at Daniel 7, you have a lion. What kingdom is that? Babylon. You have a bear. Medo-Persia. You have a leopard. You have a dragon beast. And then it sprouts ten horns. What is that? The divided Roman Empire. And then among the ten rises what? A little horn. How long does it rule? Time times the dividing of time. And what does it do? It speaks blasphemies against the Most High and persecutes the saints of the Most High. Right? Now that little horn is the same as the beast. You say, how do you know that? For three reasons. Number one, because both of them are in the same spot in the prophetic chain. Because in Revelation 13, you also have the same beast mentioned in verse 2. So in Daniel, you have lion, bear, leopard, dragon, ten horns, little horn. In Revelation chapter 13, you have lion, bear, leopard, dragon, ten horns, beast. So the beast and the little horn are in the same location in the prophetic chain. That's the first reason. Second reason, the little horn and the beast perform the same actions. You see, Revelation 13 tells us that the beast speaks blasphemies against the Most High and persecutes the saints of the Most High, which is what the little horn did. And third, they rule for the same time period. In, in Daniel, it's time, times, and the dividing of time, which you know is three and a half years. You know, in Daniel, you can tell that the word time means years, because God told Nebuchadnezzar, seven times will pass over you, or he was going to be out of it. He was going to eat grass. He was going to become a vegetarian. It helped him. <laughs> Actually, a vegan. <laughs> you know, after seven years of, 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 of veganism, you know, he, he got a clear mind. <laughs> I'm not making a point of that. It's just, just a joke. So times means years, three and a half years. But in prophecy, a day is equal to what? A year. So how many days is three and a half years? Well, you have to know how many days a month has. Do you know how many days a month has? 30. Can you prove that from the Bible? Two ways. Number one, if you read the writings of Moses, you'll discover that in some of the texts that Moses wrote, he says that the period of mourning a dead person was 30 days. In other texts, it says that they were to be mourned for a month. And secondly, if you compare Genesis 7:11 to Genesis 8, 3 and 4, you'll find that it says, that 150 days is equal to five months. So if five months are 150 days, how many days does the month have? 30. You can prove that biblically. So in Daniel it says time times the dividing of time, three and a half years, times 360 days each year, 1,260. Revelation 13, the time period is expressed as 42 months. Well, 42 months times 30 days each month is 1260. And if you still didn't get it, Revelation 12 says that the woman had to flee to the wilderness for 1260 days. <laughs> so God gives us three ways to know that this is the same time period. So the point that I want to make is that the little horn and the beast represent the same power. 
it represents the Roman Catholic papacy. Now, somebody might say, the papacy doesn't claim to be God or demand worship, and therefore the third angel's message doesn't apply to it. So the third message warns us about worshiping who? The beast, which if, is the, if the beast is the papacy, it would mean worshiping what? The papacy. But if you say, you know, the papacy demands worship, they're going to tell you, no, it doesn't. So they say it doesn't apply to us. However, I'm going to share with you some clear and multiple indications that the papacy claims to occupy the place of God. It usurps the titles of God. It usurps the rights of God. It usurps the power of God and functions that belong only to God. And it can deny all at once that it does not demand worship, but if it claims all of the powers and prerogatives of God, it is claiming the need to be worshiped, whether it wants to admit it or not. So let's go through the evidence. Because we're looking at the first angel's message and the third angel's message. We've always said as Adventists that the final crisis is going to be over two days of worship. Right? Sabbath as a sign of the Creator and Sunday as a sign of the beast. Incidentally, you know something else that's interesting? In Daniel chapter 7, it also says that the little horn thought that he could change God's law. And you look at Revelation 13, you say, where's the peril? Every part of Daniel 7, when it speaks of the little horn, has a parallel in Revelation 13. It says that it rules the same time period, it persecutes the saints, it speaks blasphemies. That's in Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. But there's one thing in Daniel 7 that you look in Revelation 13, you say, where is it? Which is, it thought it could change God's law. Do you know what it is? It's the mark of the beast, which is mentioned in Revelation 13. That's the parallel. That's the change in God's law. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. You know, people say, well, you don't talk about the papacy, you know. We are living in the time of the fulfillment of these prophecies, folks. We can't be politically correct anymore. There's too many, there's too many loving, sincere, true children of God in this system. And God wants to rescue them. And we should have a passion to rescue them by proclaiming this message. Do you want them to receive the mark of the beast? That wouldn't be very loving to say, oh no, I'm not going to offend my neighbor because if I, you know, if I tell them that the Sabbath is a day of rest and, you know, and talk about the papacy, they're going to get mad at me. And so they end up being lost and who's to blame? We are. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. It's speaking about the man of sin. The man of sin is the same as the beast and the little horn. All of the Protestant reformers believe that. And it can be proven. I have a two-hour presentation on 2 Thessalonians 2. Going all through all the characteristics. You know, the papacy is compared in 2 Thessalonians 2 to Judas Iscariot. Did, uh, was Judas Iscariot uh, concerned about the poor? Did it appear that he was? Was he a conniving politician? You can go right down the line. There's all kinds of characteristics. 
And by the way, he's called the son of perdition, which is the very name that is given to the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2. Listen to what it says. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, that is the day of the coming of Jesus, will not come unless the falling away, in Greek it's the apostasy, apostasia, it says in Greek, comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. Or that is what? Oh, so is he going to claim worship? Is the man of sin going to claim worship? Yes. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Does the man of sin claim to be God? And who is the man of sin? Papacy. Not a specific pope. The papacy as a system. And some people say, by the way, the Protestants have this totally messed up. They can never identify what these powers are. They're, they're all looking over at ISIS. They're looking over to the Middle East. You know, they're looking, they're looking to, to the war between the Palestinians and the Jews. You know, they, they, they're looking for the rebuilding of the Jewish temple after the rapture. And there's going to be this nasty individual who's going to, uh, one, one person who's going to rebuild the Jewish temple. He's going to sit there literally in the temple. He's going to build a great big statue of himself. And he's going to command everybody to worship that image. And he's going to put a tattoo on their foreheads. That's the way Protestants are interpreting these prophecies. And meanwhile, prophecies fulfilled in Rome and in the United States. And they can't see it because they're looking in the wrong place. Are you with me? You're awful quiet. <laughs> and the they say, look, it says that he's going to sit in the temple of God. That's got to be the Jewish temple. No. Every time that the Apostle Paul uses the expression temple of God, he's speaking of the church. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? By the way, when it says you, it's plural. It, you know, we can apply it to our, to our body temple. That's no problem. But it's really speaking about the church as a body. Do you not know that you, it's plural, are the temple of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the Shekinah. See, Jesus is invisible. He, he comes through the Holy Spirit now. In the Old Testament, the Shekinah was visible. It was a visible light. So every time that Paul uses the expression, the temple of God, he is referring to the church. In fact, it's a spiritual temple because Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 to 21 says that that temple is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone and we are the stones that are built up. So what kind of temple is it? Is it a literal temple? No. And it says it's, it's made a habitation for the spirit. So never does Paul use temple of God to refer to the Jewish temple. In fact, he knew very well that when Jesus left the temple for the last time, he said, your house is left unto you desolate. It was no longer. When Jesus went into the temple for the last time, he cast out the money changers. He says, my house. Don't do that in my house. It says he went into the temple of God and said, don't do that in my house. When he left the temple, he says, your house. 
is left unto you desolate. There's not, you know, the Jewish temple can be rebuilt, but it's not a fulfillment of prophecy. And I believe the devil probably will do his utmost to fulfill that prophetic scenario. So where is this Antichrist going to sit? In the church. Claiming to be what? Claiming to be God. You know, the popes of Rome have claimed interesting titles. Vicarious Philly Day is an official title of the papacy. What does that mean? It means vicar of the Son of God. The word vicar means one who takes the place of. So you could translate it, the one who takes the place of the Son of God. The popes of Rome are also called Vicarius Christi, vicars of Christ. In other words, they take the place of Christ. Who is it that takes the place of Christ? The Holy Spirit. Jesus made it very, very clear. So the popes are usurpers of the position of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what the word antichrist means? We usually think that antichrist means against Christ. But in Greek, when you put the preposition anti, anti, next to a noun, it means in place of. Let me give you three examples. In classical Greek, you have the word anti-basileus. Basileus is king. Anti-basileus means one who takes the place of the king. You have another, another word, Herod Antipas. The word pas means father. Antipas means he who reigns in place of his father. And we have the word anti-type. That doesn't mean that, that the anti-type contradicts the type or is inimical to the type. Anti-type means that which takes the place of the type. Sacrifice of Jesus takes the place of the sacrifice of the Lamb. So what I'm saying is that the Antichrist passages apply not to a system that is openly opposed to Christ, but to a system that claims to occupy the place of Christ. Does the papacy claim to have a representative that occupies the place of Christ? Absolutely. Notice what Pope Leo XIII had to say. This is an encyclical letter dated June 20, 1894. He said, speaking about the popes of Rome, we hold upon this earth, earth the place of God Almighty. He also stated, but the supreme teacher in the church is the Roman pontiff. Union of minds therefore requires, together with a perfect accord in the one faith, complete submission and obedience of the will to the church and to the Roman pontiff as to God himself. That's blasphemy, by the way. In the encyclopedia, by the way, this is an encyclopedia that I've been looking for for many, many years. It's an old Catholic encyclopedia called Prompta Biblioteca, um, edited by Lucius Ferraris. And somebody sent me the eight volumes. It's a, it's a treasure. So I wrote this from, from one of those volumes. Um, this, is, this is what this encyclopedia says. The Pope is of so great authority and power that he can modify, explain, or interpret even divine laws. 
The Pope can modify divine law since his power is not of man but of God. And he acts as vice regent of God upon earth with the most ample power of binding and loosing his sheep. Whatever the Lord God himself and the Redeemer is said to do, his vicar does. Testimony from the Roman Catholic Church itself. By the way, this, was, this is not some offshoot, offshoot encyclopedia. The Catholic encyclopedia, which is the granddaddy of all the Roman Catholic volumes, uh, volume 6, page 48, has an article titled Ferraris, who was the editor of this uh, encyclopedia. And it says, it is a veritable encyclopedia of religious knowledge and a precious mine of information. What is the leader of the Roman Catholic Church called? Holy Father. What did Jesus say about calling someone Holy Father? Who is the only one who can be called Holy Father? God. So if the popes want to be called Holy Father, are they claiming to be God, even if they don't want to admit it? Of course. Do the popes allow people to bow before them? Even kissing their feet during the 1260 years. And these days they, they kiss their ring. Does the papacy claim to forgive sins? All you have to do, do is go to Roman Catholic uh, cathedrals. You have confessionals all over the place. I was preaching in Milan uh, uh, about a month and a half ago. And I went to the cathedral in Milan. Ellen White had the opportunity of visiting the cathedral in Milan. She was... For a while, she was overwhelmed. She describes in detail, you know, everything that is, in, that is in this cathedral. It's amazing. It took 600 years to build. White marble. I mean, it's spectacular. And after Ellen White describes it, and, you know, she's really impressed, she ends by saying, but all it was was one vast pile of extravagance. And we're preparing a documentary now, by the way, of, on the Cathedral of Milan with Ella White's comments because she has some very interesting prophetic things to say about that cathedral. Let me say something about St. Alphonsus Liguori. He lived in the 17th century. 22 volumes of his work have been published. He was canonized as a saint by Pope Gregory XIV in 1839. And he was declared a doctor of the church by Pope Pius IX. By the way, the Roman Catholic Church has only 32 doctors in all of its history. Those, these are the top echelon theologians in, over two, in, in close to 2,000 years of history of the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, Liguori wrote a book called The Dignity and Duties of the Priest or Selva. Basically what it is is this compendium of all of the wisdom, in quotation marks, concerning the power of the priesthood from ancient times all the way to the day in which he lived. Now, I want you to notice a statement that he wrote in this book. I have a copy of the book. I haven't been able to find it. You might be able to find an old copy uh, on Amazon or something, but um, it's very difficult to find. This is how he states the power of the papacy to forgive sins. When he ascended into heaven, Jesus Christ left his priests after him to hold on earth his place of mediator between God and men, particularly on the altar. 
The priest holds the place of the Savior himself. When by saying, ego te absolvo, which means I forgive you, he absolves from sin. In other words, he forgives sin. And as you know, Pope Francis I has proclaimed this the year of mercy, beginning in November of last year, through uh, the rest of this year, almost the rest of this year. And basically the idea is, he says that even women who have had abortions, if they're truly sorry, they can go to their priest and they can receive forgiveness for that from the priest. You know, this is the very thing that, that led to the Protestant Reformation. And do you know that Roman Catholics and Protestants are planning to celebrate the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's uh, 95 Thesis? The Catholics are going to celebrate it with the Protestants. Well, we need to celebrate it too, but in a different way, of course. Does the papacy claim to be infallible? When the Pope speaks ex cathedra, that means from the throne. According to First Vatican Council 1870, he speaks infallibly. Let me read you what was written after Vatican Council I. We teach and define that it is a dogma divinely revealed that the Roman pontiff, when he speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in discharge of the office of pastor and doctor of all Christians, by virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine regarding faith or morals to be held by the universal church, by the divine assistance promised to him in blessed Peter, he is possessed of that infallibility with which the divine redeemer willed that his church should be endowed for defining doctrine regarding faith and morals. And that therefore such definitions of the Roman pontiff are irreformable of themselves and not from the consent of the church. But if anyone, which may God avert, presume to contradict this our definition, let him be anathema. Roman Catholic theologian writes this, the infallibility of the Pope is the infallibility of Jesus Christ himself. Whenever the Pope thinks, it is God himself who is thinking in him. You know, if you want a copy of this, just give me your email address. And I'll send you a copy of everything I'm presenting. Though you have the documentation, you can check me out to see if this is true. Do you know that the papacy in its long history has claimed to have the right to set up kings and remove kings? In fact, notice what the Council of Trent said. This is not a just a, you know, a theologian. This is a church council, Trent. The longest church council in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. All temporal power is his. That's what it says, the Pope. The dominion jurisdiction and government of the whole earth is his by divine right. All rulers of the earth are his subjects and must submit to him. And if they don't, they get removed like Henry IV and then reinstated after you're out in the cold weather in the snow for three days, barefoot. How about the papacy? Do they, have, do they claim the right to judge and to be judged by no one? 
Listen to what Pope Gregory VII had to say. This is in Article 18 of Dictatus Papai, which is uh, something that he wrote concerning the power of the papacy. In Article 18 he wrote, the Pope's sentence is not to be reviewed by anyone, while he alone can review the decisions of all others. Article 19 states, the Pope can be judged by no one, but they can judge everyone. Two more points. Would you say then that the beast uh, demands worship? Does it, do, does it claim to do everything that God does? Absolutely. Let me just mention, th this is the most blasphemous of all. Well, along with the change of the Sabbath. You know, in the, pa the papacy believes that when the priest pronounces the word of consecration, the host becomes the real body of Jesus. By a miracle of transformation, the host becomes the real body of Christ. And the cup, which is only drunk by the priest, uh, becomes the real blood of Christ. They, they say the, the, the wine still tastes like wine, but it's really his blood. And the host, you know, it tastes like a wafer, but it's really his body, his real body. Now listen to what St. Alphonsus Liguori wrote about the power of the priest when he pronounces the, word of God, the words that transform, supposedly transform the host. Thus the priest may, in a certain manner, be called the creator of his creator, since by saying the words of consecration, he creates, as it were, Jesus in the sacrament by giving him a sacramental existence and produces him as a victim to be offered to the Eternal Father. Now listen to this. As in creating the world, it was sufficient for God to have said, let it be made and it was created. He spoke and they were made. So it is sufficient for the priest to say, hoc est corpus meum, that is my body, and behold the bread is no longer bread, but the body of Jesus Christ. The power of the priest, says Saint Bernardine of Siena, is the power of the divine person for the transubstantiation of the bread requires as much power as the creation of the world. That's blasphemy. The system demands worship, whether they want to admit it or not. But the biggest evidence that the papacy is the beast that claims worship is the fact that they say that they, by the authority of Christ, change the day of worship from Sabbath to Sunday. They change God's law. Who would be the only one who could change his law? If anyone could change it, it would be only God. Of course, God's not going to change his law because it's eternal. But he would be conceivably the only one who could do it. Notice what John Paul II had to say in the apostolic letter Dies Domini to the clergy, the episcopate, and the faithful on keeping Sunday holy. This was May 31, 1998, paragraph 14. Speaking about Sunday, he says, In the first place, therefore, Sunday is the day of rest because it is the day blessed by God and made holy by Him, set apart from other days to be among all of them the Lord's day. Now you tell me where in the Bible it says that God set apart and made holy and made the Lord's day Sunday. 
Nowhere. You know, what's even more serious is that Pope John Paul II and Francis I don't even believe that creation, the creation story was literal. Let me read you something that was said by John, by John Paul II. He was speaking to the Papal Academy of the Sciences. He was speaking to scientists. And this is what he said. Today, almost half a century after the publication of the encyclical, it's speaking about encyclical that was given by Pope Pius XII called Humane Generis in 1950. See, the Roman Catholic Church in 1950 believed in the creation story until uh, the church started going liberal. Liberal theologians took over the church. Basically, this, the, the Jesuits have changed from the most conservative Roman Catholics to the most liberal. If you want to read a fascinating book, The Jesuits by Malachi Martin, who was himself a Jesuit before he died. Fascinating book on how the how the papacy, uh, the, the Jesuits who served the papacy even till death, now have totally given an about face and, and, and you know everything that the church believed now is uh, questioned. And of course this pope is a Jesuit, very liberal Jesuit. So when people ask him you know, about uh, gay marriage, he says, who am I to judge? John Paul II would have had an answer. But, you know, let me just read this statement. Today, almost half a century after the publication of the encyclical, new knowledge has led to the recognition of the theory of evolution as more than a hypothesis. It is indeed remarkable that this theory has been progressively accepted by researchers following a series of discoveries in various fields of knowledge. The convergence neither sought nor fabricated of the results of work that was conducted independently is in itself a significant argument in favor of the theory. In other words, because all of these disciplines have come to the conclusion, biology and chemistry and so on, have come to the conclusion that uh, man came into existence by evolution. He says, you know, the fact that they all worked independently and all reached the same conclusion shows that uh, that this is more than a theory. He says it's a significant argument in favor of the theory. Notice what Francis I had to say. The Big Bang, which today we hold to be the origin of the world, does not contradict the intervention of the divine creator, but rather requires it. <laughs> I'm not, it's documented. He says, evolution in nature is not inconsistent with the notion of creation because evolution requires the creation of beings that evolve. When we read about creation in Genesis, listen to this now. When we read about creation in Genesis, we run the risk of imagining God was a magician with a magic wand able to do everything. Of course, the priest can create Jesus in the sacrament. <laughs> but God could not have created the world in six days. He continues saying, once again, when we read about creation in Genesis, we run the risk of imagining God was a magician with a magic wand able to do everything. But that is not so. 
He created human beings and let them develop according to the internal laws that he gave to each one so that they would reach their fulfillment. In other words, we are only the end product of a long and bloody and ruthless process of evolution. Now let me ask you this. What does a denial of the creation story do with the two creation institutions? Does marriage between a man and a woman require that the story of creation be literal? Why do you suppose today people are saying that gay marriage is just, is just as acceptable as marriage between a man and a woman because people no longer believe the story of creation is literal? And the United States has gone down a very dangerous road. And they repudiate, first of all, the first institution, and we know that the second institution is not too far behind. Because if they redefine marriage, what makes you think they're not going to redefine the day of rest? See, the Sabbath depends on the idea that you had six literal days of creation and a literal seventh rest day. If you believe that creation took millions of years, it uproots the Sabbath. And it uproots the idea of marriage between a man and a woman. And by the way, the two creation institutions are the institutions that illustrate the relationship between God and his people. Marriage illustrates the relationship between God and his people. All throughout the Bible. And the Sabbath, as we've noticed, is a sign between God and his people. Who do you suppose wants to destroy the two creation institutions so that people forget God? You better believe it's the devil. And there's Adventist theologians that have gone along. I shouldn't have said that in Loma Linda. <laughs> now what are the papal aspirations? Well, as you know, Francis I came to the United States in September of last year. He went to the White House and spoke with President Obama for about 45 minutes. He spoke to a joint session of Congress, first time in the history of the United States. He gave a speech to the United Nations to launch the 2030 Agenda. Look that up online. It's scary. Basically, it's the idea that, that, the Pope, that the papacy, through the United Nations, will control every aspect of our lives. The economy, the family, religion, everything. And finally, the Pope gave a speech right in front of Constitution Hall in Philadelphia, where three documents, three founding documents of the United States were established. The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. He stood there right in front of Constitution Hall. We were there. We took a group of 100 people and gave out a free DVD. On the Sabbath, two hours on tracing the Sabbath all through Scripture, and two hours on Revelation 13. We gave out 120,000. 100 of us. Three days. And you can get a copy if you, if you call Secrets Unsealed. They'll send you a free copy. Don't tell them I said that. <laughs> It was amazing to me to see the Pope standing there right in front of where these three documents ratified. An individual who believes in the union of church and state, 
standing there where documents were ratified speaking of a separation of church and state. Now, the Pope has gone on the record speaking on three specific causes. Number one, poverty. He said this to the leaders of the world, the politicians of the world love this particular item of the agenda. They can jump on board. Number two, the need to save the family. And number three, the problem of climate change. Now, are these good causes? Sure. But the big question is, what is the agenda behind the causes? It's called the foot-in-the-door syndrome. The Pope has linked all three of these causes with Sunday. I don't have the quotations here, but I wrote a long <coughs> newsletter article, Secret Lens Unsealed newsletter article, uh, where I have those quotations, where the Pope connects these three causes with Sunday. Let me just paraphrase what he said. He says, you know, the reason why people are so poor is because, because the capitalists have them work and work and work and work. They don't give them any rest. So the, the business owners need to give the poor one day to rest, a week. I bet you can't guess which day it is. <laughs> Sunday. Then he speaks about the family. Oh, the family, you know, the kids are going to school, and the parents are working, and the television, you know, there's no time for, for the family to get together and eat together and go to church together. He says, the family needs a day. I bet you can't guess which day. <laughs> Sunday. And then he says, the environment is overworked. The environment needs one day to rest. I bet you can't guess which day that is. Sunday. But at creation, God established the Sabbath as the day when the environment is to rest. He established the Sabbath as the day for the family to get together. He created Adam and Eve on the sixth day, and then the Sabbath was a day of fellowship. And by the way, Jesus chose the Sabbath as the day to especially help the poor. But the Pope says, no, Sunday. Let me just read you what the aspirations of the papacy really are. The reason why they, the papes, Pope speaks about these three causes is because they resonate with the politicians of the world. He knows he can't go down the road of abortion or gay marriage. He knows that that's a lost cause. And he needs to, he needs to have the great political leaders of the world come on board. Because that's what the papacy has always done. They, they fulfill their purpose through using the civil powers of the world. That's what they did during the 1260 years. Listen to what Pope Benedict XVI had to say. This is in the, his encyclical, Caritas in Veritate, Charity and Truth. This is scary. He says, there is urgent need of a true world political authority. As my predecessor, Blessed John 23, indicated some years ago. Such an authority, listen carefully, a, he says a world political authority, such an authority would need to be regulated by law to observe consistently the principles of subsidiarity and solidarity. You say, what's that subsidiarity? 
That simply means that your interests are subsidiary to everybody else's interest. And solidarity means that we're all in this together. So the Pope says, you know, you need to have a common destination of goods. It's, it's socialism. Why do you suppose Bernie Sanders went to Rome to visit with the Pope? Because the Pope is a socialist. Why do you suppose the Pope has been to Cuba twice? And he helped Obama, uh, you know, begin diplomatic relations with Cuba. Because he's a socialist. Why do you suppose he's from Argentina? For years, a socialist country. They have a new president now. Are you with me? Continues writing. Such an authority would need to be regulated by law to observe consistently the principles of subsidiarity and solidarity to seek to establish the common good. That's something that is always used by the popes way back. And to make a commitment of, to securing authentic integral human development inspired by the values of charity and truth. Now listen carefully. Furthermore, such an authority would need to be universally recognized and to be vested with the effective power to ensure security for all, regard for justice, and respect for rights. This is what a, a reformed scholar had to say about the aspirations of papacy. This is in the book Ecclesiastical Megalomania by John Robbins. He states what the Roman Catholic Church state accomplished on a small scale during the Middle Ages is what it desires to achieve on a global scale in the coming millennium. Now we need to bring this to a close. If God's sign or seal is the Sabbath, then the sign or the seal of the beast must be an opposite day. Does that make sense? By the way, do you know Sabbath and Sunday are at two opposite ends of the spectrum? You know, we usually think of them as being together, Sabbath, Sunday. But really, Sunday's number one and Sabbath's number seven. They're diametrically opposed. Let me ask you, what comes first, the genuine and then the counterfeit, or the counterfeit and then the genuine? Uh, imagine a counterfeiter saying, hey, let's make a counterfeit $4 bill. <laughs> imagine how much money the counterfeiters could earn by making a $4, counterfeit $4 bill. Why isn't there a counterfeit $4 bill? Because there's not a genuine $4 bill. The genius of the counterfeiters is to make the counterfeit as close as possible to the, to the genuine. What is God's genuine day of worship? Would you expect the devil to establish another day, a rival day later on? Absolutely. So you're saying, Pastor Boy, you're saying that the final controversy is over days. No. It's over authority. The final conflict is a conflict more than just over days. You see, the day you keep is really the sign of the authority, the, the authority that you accept. Keeping the day is a sign of the authority that we, that we believe in. If we keep the Sabbath, we are announcing to the world that we accept the authority of the one who created the Sabbath for worship. If we keep Sunday, we are announcing to the world that we accept the authority of the one who created Sunday as a day of worship.
So in other words, the day is only the way in which God tests us to see which authority we follow. If you follow the Sabbath, whose authority are you accepting? God's authority, because he made it. If you accept Sunday as a day of worship, whose authority are you accepting? The power that changed the day from Sabbath to Sunday. Incidentally, in the days of Jesus, what were the greatest controversies of Jesus over? The Sabbath. Now listen carefully to this. The rabbis, who were the ministers of that day and age, created a counterfeit Sabbath based on human tradition. The Sabbath of the, of the rabbis was not the Sabbath of the Lord. It was a Sabbath that had all kinds of human traditions and regulations. It was a counterfeit Sabbath. By keeping it, the people were recognizing the authority of whom? Of the rabbis. And they were practicing what kind of worship? False worship. Ellen White explains that at the end of time, ministers will exalt the counterfeit Sabbath, also created by human tradition. And the people, by keeping the counterfeit day, will confess that they accept the authority of the one who created that day for worship. You see, the only difference between the days of Christ is that in the days of Christ, they kept the Sabbath in the wrong way. At the end, people will keep the wrong day. But the principle is the same. You say, does the Catholic Church admit that this is a matter of authority? Let me just read you in closing three statements from Roman Catholics themselves. A word about Sunday. This is a Roman Catholic writer. A word about Sunday. God said, remember that thou keep holy the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was Saturday, not Sunday. Why then do we keep Sunday holy instead of Saturday? He says, the church altered the observance of the Sabbath to the observance of Sunday. And then he goes on to say, Protestants who say that they go by the Bible and the Bible only, and that they do not believe anything that is not in the Bible must be rather puzzled by keeping of Sunday when God distinctly said, keep holy the Sabbath day. The word Sunday does not come anywhere in the Bible. So, listen carefully now, without knowing it, they are obeying the authority of the Catholic Church. It's a matter of authority. Here's another one. John O'Brien, who taught many years at the University of Notre Dame, but since Saturday, not Sunday, is specified in the Bible, isn't it curious that non-Catholics who profess to take their religion directly from the Bible and not from the church observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Yes, of course it is inconsistent. But this change was made about 15 centuries before Protestantism was born. And by that time, the custom was universally observed. They, Protestants, have continued the custom even though it rests upon the authority of the Catholic Church and not upon an explicit text in the Bible. That observance remains a reminder of the Mother Church from which the non-Catholic sects broke away. Like a boy running away from home but still carrying in his pocket a picture of his mother or a lock of her hair. One more. And by the way, I have, about, I have about 15 pages of quotations from popes, cardinals, etc. It's in the manual on Daniel 7. I have a 
syllabus on Daniel 7. They're all in there. Here's another one. It was the Holy Catholic Church that changed the day of rest from Saturday to Sunday, the first day of the week. And it not only compelled all to keep Sunday, but urged all persons to labor on the seventh day under pain of anathema. Protestants profess great reverence for the Bible. And yet, by their solemn act of keeping Sunday, they acknowledge the power of the Catholic Church. The Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But the Catholic Church says, no, keep the first day of the week. And lo, listen carefully to this now, and lo, the entire civilized world bows down in reverent obedience to the command of the Holy Catholic Church. Are you catching the picture? Yeah. Folks, we are very close. My two presentations tomorrow are going to be on the time of trouble that is coming. We're going to look at it from the perspective of Scripture. You know, and some people say, wow, Pastor Boar is going to scare us. <laughs> no, we're just going to take a look at the Bible, what the Bible has to say about the time of trouble. Because we need to prepare for it. You know, folks, uh, I hear people say, I hope the Lord lays me to rest before that time. <laughs> but what a privilege to live in that time. To participate in vindicating the Lord and His Holy Sabbath. What a privilege. Let's not say, I hope the Lord lays me to rest. <laughs> let's, let's say, may the Lord give me strength. To, to witness for him in that time. Now let me finish by saying this. How is our Sabbath observance? Let's bring it home. You know, in big Adventist ghettos, there's a tendency to become very, very lax in our Sabbath observance. And somebody's going to say, Pastor Boy's a fanatic. You know, times were when we never went out to eat in restaurants on Sabbath. You say, well, that's legalistic. Not if you love Jesus. We justify doing certain kinds of work on Sabbath, maybe even turning on the television. We've really gone south in our observance of the Sabbath. And folks, if we're not faithful... In our Sabbath observance, what makes us think that we're going to be faithful when it comes to giving up our life to be faithful to the Lord? You know, I have Adventists who say, Pastor, I just don't have enough, I don't make enough money to tithe. And I say, you know, I'll give you a formula where you always have enough to tithe. Tithe first. But those same people who say, I don't have enough money to tithe, they say, but when I have to give up my life for the Lord, I'll do it. What makes you think that if we don't return to the Lord a faithful 10%, we're going to give our lives for Him? There needs to be a reformation that comes from a revival in our relationship with Jesus. When it comes to Sabbath observance and so many other things where we lowered the guard. Another thing I might mention, you know, coffee has gone through a conversion experience. <laughs> you know, coffee used to be detrimental to our health, but now it's not. 
Coffee has changed. It's not coffee that's changed. Who's changed? We've changed. And we try to justify it, but say, ah, that's not so bad. You know, it, it's a good antioxidant. <laughs> it is. But there are other things that are not detrimental to your nervous system that are antioxidants too. For example, you know, people say, you know, drink wine with your meals. It's a good antioxidant, you know, lowers your cholesterol. Well, the grape juice will do that without the fermentation. So we need a revival and a reformation. I don't make lists of what we can do and what we can't do on the Sabbath. That's a matter of your conscience, following God's principles. I end by reading this passage, Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. We've read it before. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, this is God speaking, and call the Sabbath a delight. So when we turn away our foot from doing our pleasure, the Sabbath is what? It's not miserable. It's a delight. The holy day of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob. That's Canaan, by the way. We're marching to the heavenly Canaan. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy Sabbath. You could have given us just things, but you give us time. Precious time. Thank you, Father, for will, being willing to take the time to be with us. 24 whole hours. I ask, Lord, that you will help us to keep the Sabbath holy because you have made our hearts holy. I ask that you'll bring about revival and reformation in our lives, that we might not try to justify what has no justification, that we might follow your will, not because we legalistically do so, but because we want to please you. Thank you, Father, for having been with us, for answering our prayer, for we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.